we were in the garage hacking away, our grand plan to go secure the internet, and we started building all the different tools in order to make this possible. In order to have a software business, you have to sell software. To sell software, either has to be proprietary or has to be hosted. It's like as simple as that. Enterprise software is, I still think, one of the few areas that you can go compete in the market and be successful as a relatively small company. But even that requires lots of resources. Keep in mind, any of the users that love your open source software, they innately love your product for it being free. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode, we interview Alex Polby, founder and CEO of CoreOS, which was recently acquired by Red Hat. We get some of Alex's background and then dive into detail about the nuance of building and selling an enterprise product that has an open source core. All right, Alex, thanks for joining me. All right, thank you. <laughs> cool. So, you know, we'd love to just hear a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to where you are, what you're up to now, et cetera. Sure. So, you know, I hate to give my whole life story here, but a lot of it's really connected. So I need to dial it pretty far back in order to connect where we are today. So my my first technical job was when I was a freshman at Oregon State. I was abuse at OregonState.edu, which was the email where Sony sends their DMCA complaints about people downloading movies in the dorm. And so I was on the security team there. And that's like where I, I remember my first task was install open LDAP, which even now plagues sysadmins as like one of the harder things to go and do. But that's awesome. That's how I learned to use this stuff. And um, But also my freshman year, there's this thing called the Open Source Lab at Oregon State. And Oregon State randomly was like the biggest hosting provider of, for the large open source projects. So like the Apache Software Foundation, Mozilla, the Linux kernel, Freenode had their big nodes at Oregon State and all this stuff. So I got a job with that group doing servers, uh, like helping me smart hands just running the infrastructure. And that's not exactly where I met Brandon, my co-founder in CoreOS, but we kind of got the job together. We were both in the computer science program. And that's what kicked off the whole thing around open source, which led to me doing infrastructure stuff at Mozilla. That brought me to Silicon Valley, which is why I started my first company, CloudKick, which was right when Amazon was becoming a thing before they had any UIs. And then So what was CloudKick doing? CloudKick um, was cloud server monitoring management, right? As S3 was released, then EC2 was released, and then we're like, hey, maybe somebody wants like a web dashboard for this, because that didn't exist yet. Like the AWS management console wasn't a thing. And so it was a combination of like Datadog meets like RightScale, if you know that product. Sure. It's like a web based tool for monitoring managing, particularly like your cloud resources. Was that an enterprise product or was it targeted at startups or who was the, who was that, the end user? That was a SaaS product and it was targeted towards AWS users, which back then was mainly startups, you know, because it was just really early days of cloud. Cool. And then what happened with CloudKick? So CloudKick ended up being acquired by Rackspace as they geared up to compete with Amazon. And so we became uh, the basis of a couple of their cloud products. We became the management console for their cloud product. We became Rackspace Cloud Monitoring. Um, and then we built a number of other cloud products you know, for the Rackspace cloud product suite as they kind of had their big run against Amazon. And how long were you at Rackspace for? I was at Rackspace for about two years uh, after the acquisition. And you were sort of rolling your product into theirs and doing all the stuff we talked about? Exactly, yeah. Staying pretty engaged? Yeah. You know, we had a number of cloud products and just were really going after that. But that was, I did Y Combinator, you know, when I started that company I was 23 and it was really the first time Doing you're anything. 25 now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so CloudKick, then you know you're inside of Rackspace and rolling this product out, and then what, what was next? Kind of what was the insight that led to CoreOS? Yeah, so I I was at Rackspace, got the products integrated, and that sort of that whole thing self sufficient, and then I left and took some time off to figure out what's next, and it took about probably nine months, a year or so. And as we thought about CoreOS, it was really about what are the big problems we want to go solve. Let's have a big lofty mission that we can go swing for the fences on. And so we started CoreOS 
really the mission from when we started to when the company was acquired was what could we do to fundamentally improve the security of the internet? Sort of our key insight was this thing called automated operations, which is let's write programs to do the basic operational tasks that sysadmins like have problems with because we believe that's why you know just bad basic sysadmin work is why you get a hundred million users' names stolen, and th- these are things like not securing some port correctly or not patching a version of you know an out of date library. This is how people write programs to automatically hack you, but you know before CoreOS existed, you couldn't write programs to automatically fix it, mm-hmm. and that's really what led everything that we built was trying to build a system that allows us to like automatically write programs to manage infrastructure and really bring automated operations to life. And we did that. That's cool. So you were doing that. You started CoreOS. What was that? Five, six years ago. When was the? It was 2013, early 2013. Yeah. So five years ago. And so we'll we'll dive into some more of the the what you learned while you were there, but then kind of just tell the rest of the story just to set the foundation. Sure. So CoreOS, you know, it was we were in the garage hacking away our grand plan to go secure the internet. And, you know, we just we started building all the different tools in order to make this possible. A big key to that is Docker um, and containers. You know, Docker didn't exist when we started CoreOS. It it kind of emerged around the same time we started going. And so we built a Linux distro that automatically updated itself, which was a key piece of this, our namesake, CoreOS Linux. And in order to do this, you have to be able to do it in a distributed system. You have to be able to take down any component 100% and your applications keep running. And so the next critical piece to that, any distributed system needs distributed locking, which is why we built etcd. Then the next piece after that was how do you build the distributed process management. And we started building our own thing, but quickly around the same time Kubernetes was released and it was using etcd, our product, and CoreOS was like the favored way to deploy these things you know, early on and so on. And so... Um, you know, we really gravitated towards Kubernetes because you know we weren't going to just invent new things for the heck of it. We just we were, you know, taking the best pieces out there. So we had Docker, we had Kubernetes, we had CoreOS, we had CD. We built some other components like Fleet was our initial one. We had Flannel, which has become the substrate of most of the networking. The CNI, which is now the standard for networking, we built that. We built our own container runtime called Rocket, to you know many people's delight. Um, we built a bunch of these key technologies that are now being used across. This whole new wave around distributed systems and containers, and then we built an enterprise software business around it to help enterprises adopt this technology. Um, and about what six months ago, now we were acquired by Red Hat, which was a natural partner in all this because they're a big enterprise open source company. So we're like a Red Hat V two in a way. Um, mm, so it's a yeah. very natural partnership. That's cool. So now you're at Red Hat and the whole team CoreOS, and you're you're sort of taking that same mission. In expanding at Red Hat, I guess. So. Yeah, so I mean, CoreOS really built all the open source building blocks to make this possible. And now at Red Hat, I mean, automated operations is the future of the product line um, for Red Hat's like OpenShift container related products. And every product in the product line has some aspect that aspires to incorporate automatic operations as well into it. Um, and so it's pretty cool. The next thing we would do as an independent company was release this operator SDK to really help any company build bring automated operations into the applications and that's we did that as part of Red Hat pretty short after the acquisition and you know it's a key part of Red Hat strategy it's being adopted really widely so it's been cool we were able to build the uh, initial kind of foundation we built enterprise software business we coupled that with Red Hat's existing software business which allows us to really accelerate it into the market and then we started building you know a next gen of the open source world to get you know kind of continue the vision even within the big company yeah, we love that operator SDK. We, I think when I read the release around what you guys were doing there, we agree. Like we we think the future of enterprise software is autonomous applications that you sort of you know you need to be able to automate all the toil away, and we shouldn't be doing manual tasks. And so the more that we can build in that human knowledge and codify it, make it something that's programmatic instead of you know, a human sitting at a terminal looking at a dashboard and then clicking a button. Mm-hmm. You know, it just makes it easier to uh, to operate applications and operate them at scale. So it replicated. We like we love that. So that was <laughs> that's awesome. It always just really bothered me when there's big like Linux kernel bug that every operation shop around the world has to like stop everything they're doing and go and deal with that. And it's just like this huge waste of like human effort. And then there's like the whole half of people that don't actually even know it existed too that. Didn't do it not because they're like 
bad at their job. They just like missed the like random post on the mailing list or whatever, you know. Yeah, the CVE um, announcement, right? Right, exactly. They just I don't know, we're sick that day or something. And and so it's just like, why do we have to wait? Like, we can write a program to do this. It's not like we're gonna eliminate these people's jobs. We're gonna allow them to just do whatever they were supposed to be doing that day, <laughs> you know. And so it's been pretty well received. Stop the zero day, like you know, rush around, right? And right, then, or yeah. just the any yeah. It seems to happen over and over again. And if you're on top of your stuff, you get one of these like every other day. It seems like yeah, know, for but. sure. I mean, and I think you guys had a pretty quick response to some of the things like the bigger CVs and bigger vulnerabilities that came out in the last few years, right? You were repairing those, you know, on thousands of systems like instantly, right? Yeah, it was really interesting. Actually, when the like pretty much the day the acquisition was announced, there was a big Linux kernel bug. And, you know, at that point we're partners, you know, we're now one company with Red Hat. And to see how the two different sort of approaches work is really interesting and they're just different. I'm not trying to say that in a way that's like ours is necessarily always better, but they're just different approaches. They will get the patches out really fast to their customers and in a way that, you know, enterprises are used to adopting. And ours is sort of the like, you know, wild new way of doing things, but for the customers that took the leap to do it, they didn't have to do anything. They just got it. But it comes with its own faults, you know, you're trusting the automation, you know, and all this stuff. So sure. it's kind of like it's it was really interesting because I remember the president of the company that day just being like, oh, it's really cool to see sort of these two different approaches that are distinctly differentiated and have different sort of values both ways, you know, some good, some bad. But, you know, now we're bringing that to kind of the whole product line. That's cool. So let's kind of go back in and, and dig into some of the the specifics around your time you know, both at CloudKick and then at uh, Rackspace and then CoreOS and, and Red Hat now, like, and talk about most of us don't like grow up and think like I'm going to be an enterprise software. Right. So like, <laughs> how like how did you really find yourself in enterprise software? Like, because you could have you know gone down different paths and like what what made it so natural for you? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it was natural. <laughs> um, I learned a lot at CoreOS. So CloudKick wasn't enterprise. It was a SaaS company catering mainly to these emerging tech companies that were using cloud. CoreOS, you know, in modern sort of infrastructure software, there's really only two approaches. There's a SaaS model, which for lower, lower in the stack infrastructure companies is pretty well covered by the cloud providers, and you're kind of competing with the cloud providers. And so, you know, you're almost the only other option if you want to build a software company, you know, not a consulting company or not a support company or or a training company, but you want to build like a software company where you like sell software to people for money. You have to really do enterprise software because the cloud providers are really I think squeezing out the lower level infrastructure companies. They're just kind of taking all the networking and all the all like the raw compute stuff, you know, and so it's almost a side effect of doing business <laughs> in the modern modern day. It's like uh, I wish I had a more glamorous answer to it, but that's kind of the truth. Is you know, enterprise software, as I still think, one of the few areas that you can go compete in the market and be successful as a relatively small you know company. But even that requires lots of resources. So. Yeah, it's interesting. So your your point there is just that you know the infrastructure the service providers as they expand their offerings, they sort of eat up a lot of the lower level opportunities as a service. And so you're basically saying like, okay, well, what can we do that there's still opportunity? And it turns out enterprises like want to consume different software in different ways, and you know have different requirements that often aren't met by the sort of broad strokes of infrastructure providers. Yeah, I mean, another way to think about it is like, so a lot of what we did was open source. So how do you monetize open source? We either have to sell hosting or you have to sell like proprietary add-ons to it. And the people that buy proprietary add-ons to open source projects are typically the enterprise ones. And the hosting, if you think about it more like open source hosting, well, the cloud providers are eating all the open source hosting. They try to find more open source to use, to host for people because right. that's essentially their business model now. And this is sort of like where that new some of the new licensing that's come out recently has been trying to take aim at that, right? Trying, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do, you, what, do you have any thoughts on on that in terms of like if that's a viable model or if you're going to be able to keep the is like inevitability that the infrastructure providers sort of eat up everything, even no matter what the licenses are? Yeah, I think that. Well, first, the cloud companies have legal departments that care about the licenses and stuff, but. You know, if there's some license that's in the way of them adopting a source project, they just won't adopt it or they will build their own thing. 
that does the same value prop of whatever that open source project was, you know? So that's what I mean. You can't really stop it, you know? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm I'm like an open source wingnut, open source zealot to the core. In order to have a software business, you have to sell software. So as much as you love giving away software, if you're in the business of a software company, like part of your job is going to be selling software somehow. Sure. And so to sell software either has to be proprietary or has to be hosted. It's like as simple as that. If it's not, you can't really sell it to people because it's free. So you're selling actually something related to it, <laughs> you know. And so the way we approached that was by giving away sort of the core plumbing, you know, and when we had an open source project, we were really giving it all away. Great. I, I mean, like, so I think that we, we should dive into into open source. I think what we see more and more, and particularly in, in infrastructure, pretty much almost everything that that exists is open source. If it's you know, if it's going to be an enterprise software, if it's going to get adoption, you look at most of the companies that are doing well in that space, open source at the core. So talk about how like that changes the go to market, changes so much about what you're doing. So like, just talk about sort of how that came to be. And you, I mean, I'm guessing you were going to be open source from day one, but like, what other implications does that have? Yeah. So we learned a lot doing this. I mean, early days of CoreOS. So the way we approach open source is if the component is open source, it's always going to be open source. Our open sort of core model was like on the software package. Like there's a whole class of the market that buys software and just doesn't think about incorporating some open source stuff. They just they go buy software and they have people that install software and run it. And so whether or not it's open source or not, it doesn't matter. They still need to like buy software because that's just how their business operates. And that's distinctly different than like going and building an open source project and releasing it to the world to enable a bunch of developers to go and build new things with it. So when we built open source, it was much more in that latter bucket. And then we were also one of the companies that like built a package and sold it to people. And it was a little bit bipolar because the company had to do both things, even though they're kind of distinctly different tasks. You know, and it was tricky because like our company really cares a lot about open source. We also, everybody we hired, we're like, here, we're building a business, so we're gonna and we're building a software business, so we're going to like sell software at some point, everyone. So we didn't get like in our way in that way. But it's still to be kind of bipolar like that is a little bit difficult, even if you're people are okay with you know, some open source developers okay we're working on proprietary piece of software, for instance, the next day. You know, it's still a, it's a weird culture thing. So o- open source can just be this tricky, tricky thing to master because innately the open source component fundamentally won't have anything to do with your business because, like, in terms of your product, you know, because the product is going to be something that you sell. And I'm being very specific when I mean this. Obviously, our products were related to the open source, but I mean people didn't buy our thing because. They're getting some open source bits. They're buying it because they're either buying a piece of software. They're buying that package, and they don't care if it's open source or not. But I, I feel like a lot of, I mean, my perception was that the adoption came from the fact that it was open source, and so I'm guessing like your sales channels or marketing right. channels was like really open source focused. And I mean, maybe you did some top down selling where you would go into an org and try to sell in the package. But I'm guessing there was also a lot of like bottom up pull. Where engineers at a company were adopting some of your technology, and then, you know, the VP of Eng found that they were doing it and decided like that was a core part of the infrastructure. Let's let's like buy the enterprise version. How, how did it work? I mean, tell me the yeah. So open source is really good for awareness. So we would walk into meetings and people would definitely like know our company and know who we are. Like Docker is a great example of this. Like anybody that's even close to infrastructure has like heard of Docker, but like who who's actually bought the products, right? You know, and people probably are, but so it's really helpful because it help it allows like your reps and stuff to go and like get a meeting and stuff because you have a reputation behind it. And so like it's really great from that point of view. Obviously, it's really good for like give away the components just to the world in general too. Don't get me wrong; I'm sort of assuming we're all on the same page about that. But in terms of about the value of open source in general, like, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, course, yeah, I'm just saying in terms of enterprise selling, you know, it's it's helpful to get you in the door and get a meeting and get going. But just keep in mind, any of the users that love your open source software, they innately love your product for it being free. And so, like, if you are trying to use that as a lead gen thing, you have to kind of be aware that. You're seeding your like pipeline with people that want the free thing. Like they're tainted that way. So now you're looking for customers that that are both enterprise buyers, but also love free open source software. And it just narrows the pipeline of customers a lot. You know, like for an enterprise piece of software with a direct enterprise go to market, you want your pipeline to be like all software buyers, <laughs> you know? But of course it's helpful if they already know your company and they believe in it and they think you're doing good stuff. So it's good from that point of view. 
Oh, so it's interesting. So it's it sounds like from like a go-to-market perspective, the way that you would actually approach new customers is not necessarily like, hey, we know that you're using this. Like, it would be like, hey, we actually have a, we know that you buy software and you're a software per, like buyer, and so like here's a solution to solve your problem as you go into this new world. Is that right? Totally. I think like you know if we were to come out of the blue right now and start CoreOS V2 as a company where the market's at and everything, we'd be like, hey, you want to adopt a Kubernetes product? Here's one that's really easy for you to adopt. And it's meant just for people like you that buy software and have these requirements, you know, enterprise-ready requirements. And I'm solving like a problem for you around adopting this software. And that's what I solve. And I'm like betting on that there's a market for that. Versus being like, hey, we're the guys that made etcd and we contribute a lot to Kubernetes and build a core OS and all that. So you should come here about our product portfolio. You know, it's almost like, yeah, of course you, you want to go after the customer's problem. You know, one of the challenges with open source is if you invent open source from scratch, you have to wait for the market to get big enough and that to have a slice of it to be this enterprise buyer. So like you almost want to adopt, do an enterprise go-to-market and open source projects that have been like out in the market for like five years. So the usage market is big enough that you have that little pie slice of the enterprise users already like ready to go. If you invent something from scratch, you have to like build that, and then you have to like monetize your slice of the pie once that's big enough. And it just takes a long time, and startups don't often have a lot of time. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really interesting point. So I think oftentimes we see new open source like companies kind of come from. Like these more humble beginnings where it was like an engineer or two or a little community building something. GitLab kind of follows this, right? Where like it wasn't really a big project. And then like they started adding more and more to it. And then like after it got pretty broad adoption is when they could really create a company around it and mm-hmm. sort of take it to market and enterprise. So. HashiCorp is a great example of this. Yeah. HashiCorp is around for a while. And it wasn't until very like recently, in air quotes, you know, the last two years or so, that they really applied an enterprise go to market. On it, but sort of a market timing thing. You just have to get your stuff. There has to be a market. Like any software product needs a market. And if you're doing it on the heels of some open source project, you know that has to be pretty widely adopted to have any meaningful market size. Yeah. How do you how do you think someone should if you know if they have an open if they want to go down this path, they want to create that open source project, they want to see if it gets adoption. Like, what's the what's the key signal that like okay now we should start a company around this. Now we should like build. You know, it, it, it has enough momentum. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's like a specific signal. The way I would benchmark it right now is like Kubernetes of like Q1 2018, like that level is probably about the right time like in the scope of an open source project. Wow, yeah. To that's like, a lot of to, a lot of adoption. To start. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how many downloads is that or whatever, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's like it's got to feel pretty mature because remember you're going after some sliver which is probably only like 5 to 10% of the usage. That's like your possible customers. Then you're only going to get a you know a handful of those people. There are some high slice of that in order to adopt. So it has to be quite large, you know, in order to work. But it's possible. I mean, we've seen a lot of companies be quite successful with this. HashiCorp's doing really well. Um, Elastic is about to go public. Mongo already went public. The Kafka guys are here doing really good. The you know, there's like the Databricks folks. They're the productizing um, Spark, you know, all these. This model is definitely possible, but all those projects I just rattled off, they, you know, they have pretty wide adoption. They're pretty mature open source projects, you know. Yeah, it's a great point. It's it's definitely a important to kind of wait. I mean, the Kafka I think was like an out and around being used for like years before they started that company. Right, right. came out of LinkedIn, and like the, the team left to go do that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like I feel like the other foundation for companies now is like you know the founders worked at some big company where they did it they had an internal version of the thing that they're doing and then now they're going to come out into the world and like do it for everybody else. I mean, you guys described your product right as like Google infrastructure for everyone else yeah. for a long time, right? We were trying to articulate what we did. Yeah. <laughs> it's so complicated. The automated operations thing tends to work for folks more now, but yeah. But at that point, it was like it was Giphy, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> early on, 
For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny, like figuring out how to describe what you're doing to the market in a way that they can relate to it and like identify with it. Like it's hard. There's right. a lot of work. When there. you're down near like the kernel and like, you know, the distributed lock in the distributed system, which is like the underbelly of the distributed system, you know, it gets quite complicated even for technical people to figure out what's going on. Yeah, the value like your headline on your website, you know, distributed lock. Right. Like right. It's hard to hard to get anyone to really right. buy for that. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's funny. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you mentioned so this open source core, like, and you said you had these enterprise ready features around it. Like, you know, we sort of categorized those, but like, how did you decide what features to put in first? And like, what, what kind of customer discovery were you doing? I'm sure like you didn't just, you know, instantly tag on, you know, LDAP integration and, and RBAC right away. Like, how did you figure out which one to do and who did you talk to? Yeah. This is another place where, you know, being both open source and enterprise, the company has to be a bit bipolar because the way you do open source product management is quite a bit different than the way you do product management for enterprise companies. And a good enterprise product manager can do it on like open source or not. I think having experience in open source is good, but sort of the principles are the same and the product needs are similar. So it does come back down to a lot of the things that, you know, like your enterprise ready IO site talks about those sorts of features and that they're just these basic requirements that enterprise need in order to adopt a piece of software. It's kind of just the way it is. And, you know, the product managers that have dealt in the enterprise software world will sort of will know those and they'll know how to work with customers and they'll know how to set expectations with customers appropriately about when things are coming, so on too. You know, because these customers are used to it taking a quarter or two or, you know, for a new feature to come out and and so on. So, you know, one of the things Say one of my mistakes was waiting to hire enterprise product management into the company because I felt like, hey, you know, I'm a founder, I'm a technical founder, I'm supposed to be the person doing this, so on. But you know, my expertise is in the open source side of things. And so once I brought in a partner to the company who's really pro enterprise product management, it made the world a difference. Um, you know, and when we were in the early gritty stages of figuring this stuff out, and just like, how do you work with these customers? What do they expect? How do you run a cab, uh, customer advisory board? You know, all these sorts of things that just like enterprise product management, you know, it comes intuitively to, you know, and I'm just being transparent with myself. You know, I, my background was not in that. I'm like an open source infrastructure person. And so it was a big learning experience, you know, doing that. But I'm sure you learned a lot along the way. I'm sure, like, for you, sure. Yeah. You, you have to pick it up. I, I think I got it. I think I get it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely get it. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's, it's a skill. It takes a long time to really pick it up. And, you know, when my first enterprise software job, I was like, Sitting in rooms, didn't know what people were talking about. There would be acronyms thrown around. I'd be like, "What, is, what is, does that yeah. mean?" Right? Yeah. So you felt similar, maybe, in in like as you were going in enterprise, like you just didn't have the same vernacular. What was the? Yeah, it's just a like traditional enterprise IT buyer that is not from a company that adopts open source as like their way of doing it. Just has a different style than like what you might be used to with you know Silicon Valley startups and smaller companies and so on, just how they consume software. And so just really understanding that process and how it works and the requirements for that, you know, it's an education for sure. And I'll be honest with you, I learned it all as we did our enterprise go to market uh, with CoreOS through trial and error. Yeah, sure. I mean, got to learn on the fly, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and then did you notice a big difference between companies, you know, based in Silicon Valley and like, you know, sort of like enterprise tech companies versus like traditional enterprises scattered throughout the rest of the world or the rest of the country? Regionally a little bit, but like the tech companies, the big tech companies, they generally hire the people that just adopt open source themselves. Right. You know, the companies we really selling into were the I call them enterprise early adopters. Mm. They're forward thinking, but they're still traditional enterprise and have requirements that enterprises. So these were like Nike and Starbucks and Ticketmaster and these companies that they're forward thinking, they're progressive in terms of knowing that their their digital transformation is coming and they have to do something about it and all that. But they still, you know, they're not a software company at the end of the day in their bones. You know, the the big tech companies, the Ubers or LinkedIn and Google LinkedIn, exactly. Yeah, they're software companies yeah. at the end of the day. They're just like these at scale software companies, you know. So they have their enterprise like issues, but it's different when you can hire the people to go. You know, install Kubernetes as Kubernetes is being developed. You know, there's just a 
a bunch of companies that you know kind of there could do that could maybe have a small tiger team doing that sort of thing but they still want to work with partners uh, to develop and bring these technologies into the environment and that's really where we got started was with those you know those sorts of accounts so it's interesting that you wouldn't find you know your early customers from those like enterprise software like enterprise like tech companies right like that's not that's not your customer base early on like that you're saying that they can they kind of do it themselves generally right the ones that do it themselves are the big tech companies okay. for sure yeah so the interesting question is like as more and more companies have to become tech companies right like i mean all the banks describe themselves as software companies now and say mm-hmm. that's what they do right so as that transition happens which i th- I think is true, right? I think like you know, bits meet atoms, and that's kind of the way of the future. You have to be able to figure out both. Do you think that companies will develop more like big tech companies and do it themselves, or do you think that they'll continue to to find partners to help bring them into this new future? I think they'll need to bring in partners. I think they'll have to bring in a lot of automation too. I think that's why our automated operations is part of it. You know, running infrastructure and running cloud infrastructure that's like always on and globally distributed and all this stuff is tremendously difficult even with all the tools and there's just only so many people out there that are really good at it now if every company out there has to be really good at it it just like doesn't scale i mean it's just it's like physics it just doesn't quite work that there just aren't enough people to be really good at it so like automation in this case is the only answer or the companies that don't go fast enough just getting eaten by the ones that go faster right you see amazon doing quite effectively across many different areas um, of the market i think automation is really the answer at least on the lower level cloud stuff for allowing the companies to focus on their core competencies you know if you're starbucks or Ticketmaster, right? They, they, why are they pros at managing their Linux kernels, right? It's like, why do they have to be really good at that, you know? Um, but yet they do have to be really good at that. Sure. If they don't, they're going to get hacked and they're going to go out of business. So they get hacked too many times, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they have hundreds of millions of users' data. And so they have to get good at this stuff, you know, regardless of their ability or their culture internally. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that like the progress that, you know, the, the rest of the world is being caught up in, right? And like as, just moving so fast. I think you're right that partners will be a really important part of taking everybody else there and every new company that comes up and allowing. I think you're. I also like the point of focusing on what your core competency and is. What the differentiation is. You know, like you're not going to be differentiated on how fast you patch your kernel. So, but it, but but it you, could impact the bottom line if, right, you, know, through if you don't do things. it right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, when you think about that enterprise go to market right like one of the things i love to understand is it's like how do you get your first customers right like you know you're this series a funded or seed funded company and you need to show some customer interest and adoption and traction like how do you get in the room how do you get people to adopt it like who do you look for what questions do you ask mm-hmm. yeah i mean for us there's really different phases of where we approached it in about what was it i'd say Late 2016 is really when we turned on our enterprise go-to-market in the sense that we had a turnkey product. And one of the big ahas um, for me was like <laughs> the power of a SKU. Once you have a SKU on a product, you know how you have this thing that you can like sell multiple copies of to people? You're not selling consulting anymore. You're not selling support and services. You're actually like selling a thing, mm-hmm. you know? So if you can like SKU your software product, it's like ready for an enterprise sales force <laughs> because you know you have this thing that you can just the reps can go and sell a product. You know, it could be a copy machine or it could be uh, whatever, but you're like your product is like one of those things now and it can just go and be sold, <laughs> you know? And to get a point where your product is packaged up enough and general purpose enough that it could just be sold to a bunch of different users as like a thing that's sold is its own milestone, you know? Because once you have that, you can then go build the like lead gen and like the whole machine around how do you bring that to market as quickly and as effectively as possible and you really need that like that thing to be crystallized before you can do that otherwise every deal will just be this custom deal and you're not scaling anything you're just like hitting whatever throughput you have on the people that know how to like adapt a solution to whatever that current the pipeline whatever people you have in your company that are able to like sort of rejigger your stuff to work for that customers need like fitting two puzzle pieces that don't fit together but like reshaping both of them such that they actually come together when you have the skew it's like oh 
there's the hole in that company. I'll put my puzzle piece there. And then, oh, here's the hole in that company. I'll put my puzzle piece there. You know, but the so rep doesn't get to like modify the puzzle piece at all. They just have to find the hole that it fits into, you know? Yeah, that's really, I'm, I'm thinking through that. It's really interesting because it sort of describes the, I'm guessing you're saying early on, you're doing this like customization piece where you're figuring out like how to solve the problem at this company that wants to pay you some money and you want to get them as a customer and like you're like okay well what shape does our puzzle piece need to be in order to like right so like and you're like tell me about your puzzle piece and then you're building yours to like you know Fit it yeah and then you like put you're, it in you're right and like next one like it's a little different puzzle right. piece and so like, like ah might do it again and then as you're doing that is it like is your puzzle piece just like get a thousand notches on it or is your puzzle piece like become something do you start to feel like how do you discover what that like the common piece is yeah, that's the trickier part. That's the listening to the market and getting the feedback. I think the art of product management is really nailing that, you know, and and also being at a point where you're like, no, I have something good enough and almost making it rigid. Because if it's not rigid, you can't build the go-to-market side around it. You can't scale it. Like, because not everyone can be a founder and like map it to, you know, like reshape both sides, like go tell everyone to go rebuild the product and then go tell the customer that you're going to solve the problem. You know, at some point you want to have the thing that just like you need a flywheel and you just keep selling them and keep printing them. And in software, it's beautiful when that starts to work because there's the printing cost is zero, you know? So it's like, that's what you're trying to get to. Now, even in, once we got to that stage on the software product, we still had to sell some consulting up front to help customers adopt it, like install it and like get their first apps running on it and stuff. Just because we're so low in the stack, you know, it's pretty heavy to get it running. But once it's kind of like up and running, then, you know, they have the same thing on every single customer and our automated operations worked exactly the same everywhere. So we push a button and all the clusters go and update and all this stuff, you know, so you kind of have to have the rigid, the rigidness, not just for like the product to work in our case of automated operations, but also for the sales and go-to-market engine to actually function. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I'm I'm running through like why that's so important. But you're right; it's like you have to have this common thing you can sell because I think founders are often very comfortable with a lot of change and a lot of like right. you know iteration as you're feeling it out. But if you're going to take this to market and you're going to train a sales team and then you're going to create the collateral and you're going to do all the go to market effort you can't do that every week like that's not a that's not an, it's a super right. not a super iterative task to like recollateralize and retrain and re-enable right. an entire team it's like that's like months of effort if you are, you know, if you're if you're selling something like that, so it took me a really long time to crack the nut of just like what is a good enterprise sales rep? Like, how do they work and what are they good at? And the thing that it took me a really long time to understand is like a a really good sales rep, what they're good at is selling, and the art of selling is this magical thing that's very similar to like the art of writing you know, some crazy algorithm, and just like you can have these like wicked amazing programmers that you don't quite know how they tick or work but like they are really good at what they do selling is similar to that and like there's there's something special in the people that are able to really sell but their skills are not like technical or whatever they they have a completely different set of skills than the programmers but the like level of skill is similar to that high end programmer <laughs> and and like understanding and respecting that and then understanding that that's like those people they need a thing to go and sell and that's why it has to be rigid because once you kind of match those two things together uh, it works really really well and then you bring in your sales enablement programs that allow them to get the latest and greatest pitches and get the latest and greatest things but it was amazing to watch our best reps work and you know if you look through their history you know they sold all sorts of different stuff because because they can because they're not it, it's just like a good programmer can program in all sorts of different languages or whatever it doesn't matter you know because their their skills are really specific but yeah you can't you can't just like give them one thing and have it like shapeshift on them because like they're not going to be able to use their skills on like a shapeshifting product you know because it takes work for them to hone their own art on whatever you give them in the first place. I love that. That's that's great insight. I think, you know, we as technical founders often we don't love sales, <laughs> right? You know, and so, but it's funny as we as we scale, we almost always get more appreciation for for the art and for it, and we're like, oh yeah, it's still not. There's still some bad salespeople out there that we don't oh, want to sure. talk to, but yeah, for sure. 
it's a weird thing, especially as technical founders, but yeah, you have to be good at it. And when it works, it's amazing like to see the engine come alive end to end from like a lead that's generated to uh, you know, almost a support ticket is like the other end of the funnel because that means it's been sold and installed and used and like, you know, and to have the whole company working together across that whole spectrum is quite amazing. So you've been building this morphing piece and then you finally figure out what it is that's actually like the sort of rigid piece that you can then resell and you do the enterprise go to market and you enable as teams. Generally, the, the next days, and maybe you didn't get there with CoreOS, but like it's second product introduction, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something you guys did? Did you have like an additional thing that you started to sell, like another SKU? We did. Our other big one was Quay, our container registry product. Right. So Tectonic was our Kubernetes, enterprise-ready Kubernetes, and then Quay was our container registry. And anybody doing anything in the category had to have a container registry, and we had the best one. We have a hosted product, and then we have the software licensed version of it. We and use yeah, it. Yeah. We use it still. It's yeah. a great product. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and Red Hat, I don't believe it's open sourced it yet, but they will soon. Oh, cool. But we sold Quay as like a licensed piece of enterprise software. Like, no shame about it. <laughs> There's nothing, yeah. Like, it, you know, obviously we use some open source stuff to build it. Everybody uses open source to build stuff these days, but it itself was a licensed product that we sold. Um, and so, yeah, but you arm the sales team with both. But that's challenging early on to have one, you're figuring out how to build your sales force. And now you're trying to enable them with multiple products. And it's just kind of like, if, again, I would totally recommend like having one product and getting to a really big scale, like, I don't know, 100 million in revenue, maybe 50 million in revenue before you start trying to bring out like another thing in your product line. Like, it's only the big companies that have this like functioning sales muscle. They're able to like roll out lots of products. But even the big companies that do that aren't necessarily that good at it. Like, Oracle's really good at it. They have tons of different products and stuff. Uh, Like, you know, VMware still selling the VMware stuff is like the main thing. As much as they try to add, um, other products to it, you know, their bread and butter is still like vSphere sweet, you know, and so I would I would definitely caution against trying to have multiple SKUs too early on. I mean, technically, you're going to have multiple SKUs even if it's on one product because you're going to have like, you know, the ten node version and the five node version or something where it might be different SKUs. But yeah, we, um, product assortment, right? Like yeah, the same, like you but know, it's the same core thing. Same, it's just it's different like, ways to buy it yeah. or different price points or something. Sort of like different. Entitlements for how many you know quantities you can consume right. or added features. Or you the might pro have. version gets you a couple more features right. or something. Yeah, but anyway, it's the same same product at the end of the day. It's interesting because you also, I mean, you had many different open source projects, right? And that's, but remember, the open source project thing is distinctly different than your enterprise go to market. Mm-hmm. You know, they're related. They like kind of help each other in terms of awareness and things, but when a customers, an enterprise customer is going to buy something, they're innately not buying our open source stuff. They can't buy that. We give it away for free. They can only buy the stuff that we sell to them, which sometimes is a package of open source stuff that is all just open source, but it's like bundled together in a package, or it's like actual proprietary software that they can't get in the open source stuff. And for scaling an enterprise software model, that's definitely more valuable to have something that people really want that's really hard to build that they have to pay for to get. It kind of sounds obvious when you say it. And then the open source package is really more of a convenience thing. Like if it's all open source, but it's just packaged up for you and versioned for you, that's just makes people's lives easier that can't, you know, hire the people to go piece it all together themselves. You know, you're kind of saving them that headcount um, from that point of view. But you have to get one of those things, even if you're building all the open source. I think one thing people don't realize about open source is you have to kind of two x everything because you have to build all this open source stuff, which requires its own product management and its own engineering teams and like its own everything. marketing, its own go to market. Right? You still have to like take that. Yeah, like get people to use it. Like you can't just like. Build it and put it out there and be like, exactly. Yeah, everyone's going to use it now. It's and like, then over no. here, you're going to be building your enterprise software product, which is its own whole thing, remember? you know. Um, and so the companies that sort of do both well are the ones that um, where they they own the project through maintainers. So, like again, pretty much all those companies we mentioned earlier, Hashi, Elastic, Confluent, Databricks, they like own their software projects and they're able to build the enterprise features on top of that because they really control the communities that go and do it. So they're essentially like they're an enterprise software company that has all the software. They just happen to have this third party community that runs out there too alongside it, but they're kind of running it as one whole thing. So that's kind of where it works. But you still, even they have to double their efforts because they have to have all their engineers working on the open source stuff and they have to have the people building the enterprise stuff as well. Yeah, it's interesting the way that you described that, which was they own it 
not because like the original creators are still like, you know, the founders of this company, but because they employ most of the people that are the contributors to it. Essentially, yeah, it's it's whatever form of control. They control the project. So however yeah. do they however they control it, which is often through maintainers. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective that I, I hadn't really thought about much because you know, generally I because I'm a founder, I think about founder centric companies that, you know, have the team that built the first version and they built the whole thing. But realistically it's like especially for these longer lived, more mature products, it's about having control over the community and that's generally by employing enough of the the core contributors to be able to influence like what happens. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. cool. So I guess if your if your suggestion is to Take a, a mature enterprise software open source project to market. You need to control the maintainers. And you don't have to start it. You gotta. <laughs> I know it sounds so evil to say it, but it's just like the way that it kind of works. No, I don't think it sounds yeah. evil. Employee open source contributors yeah. doesn't sound like a bad. Often the companies that do have the control have the like founders of the projects as well. You know, just kind of all goes hand in hand. But that's probably like I don't think that like Cloudbees has like the founders of Jenkins, right? But they control. They probably have the top maintainers. Yeah, they have everything. all the top maintainers. Yeah, they probably do sixty percent of the maintainers are more right? right so I think the open source angle is is really interesting but like when you were building the enterprise version and so it's tectonic is the is like the primary enterprise one mm-hmm. right like were there things that enterprises wanted that surprised you or features that were really hard to like deliver and you just didn't really understand the requirements I'd say the most interesting like lesson learned in that is not necessarily some specific features. Most of the features are things, again, on your website, you go and list. It's kind of these nuts and bolts thing. But if they don't exist, they just can't adopt it. Sure. So it's like they can't try some preliminary version or whatever. It's like you have to cross this threshold of, you know, I'd say on your list, it's probably like the first five or six of them. I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, but as you single read sign list, on and single based access on, control, yeah. audit logs and audit logs. Yeah. And it's like, but if they just don't exist, it's just kind of like, hey guys, we really like you, but we just can't adopt it. So just let us know when it's ready, you know. And so it's kind of like you have to cross this threshold of enterprise readiness just to even be like adoptable, you know. And in our space, you know, we were very much emerging the whole category with a whole set of companies, and you know, it just takes a little time to mature these these features. And our approach to it, because we didn't control Kubernetes, um, which was a big piece to this, is we were just kind of always ahead. Like our company mm-hmm. is always ahead uh, on most of the different. Features and needs, so we, you know, we had first product with our back in it. You know, we have the first one that allowed you to tie to your corporate LDAP. Uh, you know, Kubernetes where kubectl, the command kubectl, kubectl is tied to <laughs> to your LDAP as well as the web interface is tied to your LDAP, and they're all in sync. And if you disable the user online, it disables the command line. Like having all that work, we were at the first product that did it. It's cool. Now the problem with that model again is just a problem from a business point of view uh, is. We're playing a stay ahead game, which isn't super sustainable because at some point, you know, the open source communities will catch up and be able to have these features too. And it kind of erodes your value. And you constantly feel like you're just building the stuff that the open source community goes and puts in anyway. Cause these were our like proprietary features we were adding in, you know, and it also kind of feels disingenuous because we're like, we love open source and we want just like the stuff to be generally adopted, you know. And so it was kind of this like this weird thing. That's why the companies that own their projects have a lot easier time because it's just like the feature's never gonna go in the, <laughs> yeah. the upstream one. They just won't prioritize it, you know. And so you you know, you kind of don't have to worry about that. Where our model was just like, you know, always like, okay, we have LDAP integration, but like, you know, probably next release, Kubernetes will have it natively. What are we gonna put next to keep it interesting for people? Sure. You know, and that's the struggle with not owning it. This is why open source businesses are so hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like you were building your own orchestration and scheduling with Fleet, right? And so, but you saw Kubernetes, and you were like, yeah. "Well, as we went, our goal at the end of the day was automated operations, and sure. we just wanted the best tools available to bring automated operations to market, and we were going to build anything in our way to have it exist. And so, whenever we built software, we did the like white space open source projects, and then we gave it out to the world. And so when Kubernetes came along, it was just obvious because like we were essentially just copying the Google white papers anyway. So to have Google, the people that wrote the white paper working on it, and then them using our products in it, you know, it was kind of like, oh, obvious. We'll just adopt that instead because our goal wasn't that part of the stack. It was kind of further down the automated operations piece. Sure. So yeah. our proprietary IP really, at the end of the day, 
was automated operations. It was code that knew how to like sweep your whole cluster and reboot everything and upgrade all your Kubernetes nodes and like all of that. And if you remove that, you still have a completely vanilla upstream Kubernetes cluster. Mm-hmm. It's just it's you have to go manage it now. You don't have software to go and manage. It's like plugging in an autopilot to the car. We sold the autopilot, yeah. you know, but all the sensors and everything were already in the car and they were all open source. <laughs> so somebody else could build one too. But nobody has still even today. And that, that's going to become a I guess an important feature in OpenShift is for that, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it, cool. essentially the products have merged. Now Red Hat's business model is slightly different. They're a very unique business model. Yeah, all Red Hat software is open source, and I don't know if Red Hat could be recreated again. But Red Hat has this very, very interesting business model in that it's closer to what I would call probably unflattering is insurance. It's an insurance product, mm. I believe. I'm not speaking on behalf of Red Hat in this. I guess like maybe I am. I do work at Red Hat. But Red Hat's insurance product is brilliant for open source. It essentially just says for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is really the bread and butter of Red Hat's business. Um, they have many different products, though, and you know many of them are growing really well. But Red Hat Linux, the way it works is essentially they'll guarantee you that your applications will continue to run on RHEL. For like some period of time, and you know the big policies are like ten-year policies, and so what that means is, your application you don't have to modify it at all, but the thing it's running on will get its security patches, will get its performance fixes and stuff. And to do that, it's actually quite messy work, but that's why they make so much money doing it because it's a really hard problem that people really want, and it can all be open source because it's just this like ever-changing thing. It's like there's always another patch that needs to be backported and like whatever into it, but yet they're able to stamp out a consistent product to all their customers at the end of the day. And so it's it's a really unique unique model. No, I love it. What it does is it enables the adoption of open source in enterprise because if that wasn't a service that they provided, then that would be this huge amount of overhead that every single organization had to take on themselves to like use upstream Linux and like to keep this all together. So I think someone putting it into a really great package and then making it available and then being reliable enough to being there in 10 years, super, super valuable. Mm -hmm. So cool. And as part of the future of Red Hat, and this is maybe where I am putting on my Red Hat hat a little bit, is, you know, we are bringing automated operations to all this stuff. And you can't do that if the APIs break. Like if the APIs break between versions, we can't automatically upgrade them. Because on the other side of the upgrade, your stuff's not going to run anymore. So they they really comes hand in hand together and that you need the stable APIs and the stable interfaces to work and to guaranteed work in order for automated operations to work. And that's why, again, the marriage with CoreOS and Red Hat makes so much sense because like truly CoreOS it worked, our technology worked, it worked really well. But for it to be like ubiquitous in the market and for it to work in a way that you know never takes anybody out and truly automated like across a wide swath of the market, you have to be partnered with a software product that never breaks. And that's what Red Hat offers. Mm. You kind of have to have both. That's cool. So that's why it was a natural fit for you guys together. Yeah, totally natural yeah. fit. And Red Hat's whole future is based around their Kubernetes product, OpenShift, and now Tectonic and OpenShift. They've really come together really nicely. And so the next major version of OpenShift will have all the different components of the Tectonic stuff built into it. Sort of like we took the next version of Tectonic and it's like the next version of OpenShift and really brought them together. And then the automated operations is really becoming ubiquitous through the SDK. And you know Red Hat can use its huge network of ISV partners in order to bring automated operations to all their products really, really quickly. And so it's, it's this really nice complementary thing. Yeah, that, that actually kind of just sparked a new question I, I thought about, which is one thing that I think is fairly misunderstood in the market is the role that like VARs and MSPs play or like channel partners play in enterprise software. Did you guys get very far along with that at CoreOS? Do you have much experience with that? Is something you can shed light on? We didn't really get to the channels yet. I think right around... When we were being acquired, is when we probably would have started the program, which probably would have yielded around a year later. But like, you have to carry your own water before you can expect a third party to carry it. Which means you have to have that skew really buttoned up. Yeah, you have to have that thing really that puzzle piece super sharp <laughs> and like sort it out. And as an early stage company, you know it's messy figuring that out. And so, I'd probably say at maybe twenty million in revenue on your product, assuming you got that in like three or four years on an enterprise go-to-market tops sort of thing. Like you know that you have it. If you can scale it, you know, 
zero to 20 million in like three years, you probably have something that an enterprise go to market can chew on. So at that point, you know, you could successfully put it in a channel that can go and blow that out with their reach of whoever they're working with, you know. But my theory, we didn't get far enough along this, but my theory and the advice that I was given and made a lot of sense to me is just like, we got to be able to carry our own water. We got to get our own machine functioning before we expect to drop it into someone else's machine and have any chance of success. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, from the stage earlier, right? It's like you as the founder had to be able to sell it before you could, you know, and then you had to have like one or two sales reps that could sell it. And then it's like, now you can have a sales team that can sell it. And part of it's that, you know, having that very rigid puzzle piece that it's easy to repeat. Mm -hmm. And like, you can sell anything, but that's because you understand the product and the customer. Right, and good early stage reps are more adaptable too. And like more malleable to it kind of being a mess. And so- But you don't have 50 of those, you have like- Three, exactly. Right? Yeah. But when, when you go drop in a channel, one of these big companies, again, they have people that are selling tons of different things. So it just has to be has to be good. I think the other component is how do you make those partnerships really truly mutually beneficial? Mm. How does that work? And if you're going through these traditional software resellers, your product definitely needs to be really mature. If you're going through like one of these big software companies, through their channel is kind of a special startup sort of deal, you know. That's where it's just how does it become truly mutually beneficial? Because what's going on there typically is, you know, the company has some deficiency internally where they're unable to deliver the product themselves. So they're working with a fun little startup to go and do that. But then it starts to you get conflict really quickly, um, either because you know they they want to buy you or because they're going to just go build their own product and shut you out once they've been able to build it. You know, and so on. But I think what you're talking about more of the traditional like software reseller, yeah, the VARs and sure. But you know, those other channel partners are interesting too, because for companies that are, you know, series A, B, C even, right? Like finding the right channels and you know, you often hear a lot of the marketplaces that exist for software aren't really amazing. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, again, we would just say no to partnerships a lot. Like because there's there's the blog post partnership, which what does that really get you? Sure. Um, and then there's the you know, big company snooping around on your product line to see how well it's actually doing. Which, what's that going to get you either? Right. You know, and even if you're trying to like have a exit or something to that company, letting them see inside the house before they bought anything, like, is not a good idea either. So it's like, there's really no circumstance that I think doing channel unless your model, because you're like a master of this stuff already, is going to be a channel like model. Which there are some companies that do that really sure. successfully. Box is famous but, for being so channel oriented, but it's like kind of built from the ground up to do that, or at least it's very intentional. And there are some products that can go that way for sure. But again, I think as we're talking, we're talking about more like kind of technical, or at least I'm talking more from a base of like I'm an open source sysadmin hacker person. Sure, like you know, we got to figure out you know the nuts and bolts of enterprise go to market. We have to carry our own water successfully first, and then naturally channel will just be part of extending that as the go to market matures. Yeah, that's that's great. So finally, I'd love to just you know give you a moment if there's anything else you think is really interesting about the future of. Software, autonomous operations, enterprise software, advice for folks that are trying to to really figure out how to build, you know, a great enterprise software company, like where they should be focusing and what what like where's the puck going, right? Like think about the future. Like what's what what are the important things for people to hold in their mind? I think um back to the work that you're doing, the every application is becoming a distributed application. And this is why things like Kubernetes are so popular now, because essentially it's a framework for how do you manage a distributed application. Like On the cloud side of things, there's nothing that runs on one machine anymore. And even if it does from a resources point of view, it still should be distributed in case that server goes down, because the things always have to stay running. you know. And I think that's applying all over in terms of needing to run on-prem distributed, needing to run on cloud distributed and that's why I think like Kubernetes is inevitable across the ecosystem and you'll see it get embedded more and more into things and I just wanted to become like the Linux kernel like just get stable and solid and just like boring and nobody thinks about it anymore because it's just something that's out there we've all kind of moved on and up to something bigger but I just think that it's like I think it's just the way that everything is moving and so the work that you're doing around helping Companies bring their own applications and build distributed versions of those that companies run autonomously on prem. I mean, it's just like brilliant. 
I think it's a great well, thank you. Great idea because it's coming, and every customer I talk to wants things to be easier to manage on prem. I think there's gonna be this cycle kind of off of cloud a little bit too. Like everything comes and goes, and like we're definitely full on move it to cloud mode right now. But like I see that cycling if it's easier to run it in any environment and so on, and that's sort of the play with all this stuff. So I definitely yeah, I mean, think that's the way things are going. That's awesome. Yeah, we 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 totally agree. Kubernetes is a it's got to become the foundation. We're betting big on that. I mean, you obviously bet big on that. A lot of companies are betting big for that to be the foundation of distributed applications and the future of software. There's still it's still hard, right? There's still a lot to do there. So you know we have we have work to do to make that a a future that we can get to. But I think if we get there, yeah, it'll be wherever you want to run it, on-prem, cloud, anything else, and we can run these autonomously. If everybody can have autonomous uh, operations. Automatic operations. Automatic operations. <laughs> cool. Alex, thanks so much, man. This is a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.